before I begin, I just want to say that um, yeah, it's great to uh, have you here. And the fact that you are still here is a sign of um, complete success in my book. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what we do. I think this, our whole our retreat, we just, we just kind of punch in in the morning, punch out at night. <laughs> you know, it's just, just showing up, willing, being willing to show up. That's 90% of the, of the deal. So, uh, congratulations, showing up. We could look at a retreat like this. Uh, One way we might look at it is um, is as a period of uh, field work, of research, scientific field work. Uh, You could say that we're studying the field of uh, our body, heart, mind. This is the terrain of this exploration. We're, we're investigating nature manifesting as body, heart, and mind. So it's an exploration. It's an investigation like, a, like field work, like a scientist might do in field work. And our objective in doing this, then, is to learn as much as we can about ourselves, about the universe, about what it means to be human, about the deeper truths of life, you could say, to really plumb the depths of what we can understand, plumb the depths of the nature of reality through exploring our body, mind, and heart. This is what we can know. It's the fullness of our life, our whole experience there. And the Buddha said that we have everything we need in this fathom-long body. That's how it was described. We have everything we need in this fathom-long body to understand the entire universe, to really plumb the depths of what is possible for us to understand, to realize full, a fully liberated heart and mind. It's, we're complete in that way. We don't need to get something we don't already have, and we don't have to get rid of anything that's here. So we're in good shape in that regard. We're complete. Suzuki Roshi, I think it was, once said, you're all perfect just as you are, and you could use a little work. <laughs> so, so that's the way it is. We're all perfect just as we are, and yeah, we could use a little work too. And those are not mutually contradictory things. A few years ago, I, I was watching um, a nature show on, on the public television station, and it was a show about, um, it took place in Australia, at least part of it, where I, I was just teaching there. So it was on my mind because um, <clears throat> the show took place there, and, and uh, there was this, it was a, a lot of it was about these lizards called monitor lizards. Uh, some of them get quite huge. They can get eight or nine feet long, the really big ones. I think maybe the Komodo dragon is one of them. But there's some really big ones in Australia, I guess, and they come in all sizes. Um, but apparently they're quite um, intelligent for lizards. And uh, in this show, uh, one of the larger ones had been trained to do certain kinds of tasks and would get a food reward for doing these things. And uh, Oh, I remember one, there was one place, it was, this thing was huge. 
And this guy was, it's the zookeeper was giving it a bath with like a, a broom, a bristle broom and a big bucket of suds and was washing it down and the thing was just, you know, really liking it. And, uh, and it would come up and, to its keeper and nuzzle up against him to be petted. It was quite friendly. It was well fed at that time. I think at another point it might decide that, you know, his arm would make a nice meal. But um, it was kind of amazing to see it acting rather doggishly. And uh, this scientist that they interviewed on this show, he had been studying a, a small area in, in the desert in Western Australia, central Western Australia. And it was a, not that big of an area, some acres. And maybe like studying the woods out behind IMS or a little bigger than that. <clears throat> and he'd been there for 40 years. Uh, not full-time, but a big part of each year studying this one section of desert. And, you know, he knew every plant and animal that lived there. But he was so excited and, and, uh, and interested in it. And he said, oh, I'm just, just starting to get to know, just starting to learn about this. He had this incredible curiosity and connection to his world there and this interest in curiosity. <coughs> Albert Einstein once said, I have no special talent. I am just passionately curious. And this, this quality of, of interest, of curiosity, is really uh, important, really crucial to our practice in many ways. You know, can we bring some of this quality to our mindfulness practice, to our experience as it unfolds? This will really serve us well, really important if we can tap into this. Because there's so much we can learn from this exploration we're doing. But our attitude, our relationship to it is really important. There's a Catholic priest, I think he's no longer alive, he was in Canada. And he said this once, his name is Henri J.M. Nguyen. He said, The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. Now this is a really beautiful description of our practice in in a way. This idea of waiting actively present to the moment. That's what we're doing. We're bringing this kind of active presence to the moment. And we we have this quality of trusting that things will present themselves. That we just don't know what will be coming. So we're, we're letting go of this idea of control in that. If, if you, any of you have ever spent time with young children, and some of you are probably parents, have raised kids of your own, or maybe you've <clears throat> worked in schools or had a chance to hang out with kids, especially I'd say preschool kids, you know, and they have such a, a wide open relationship to the world, to their life. And it's such a mystery, and they're, everything's new, and there's such a sense of possibility there. You know, the, the universe is still a place of magic and uh, the world of their imagination is so rich and 
they're not bound by notions of what's real and what isn't in the same way as <clears throat> we seem to be as we grow older. Boundaries between things are fluid and things aren't so solid and uh, locked down as this or that. You know, we, we know so much. We go to school and we, we learn a lot of data. You know, we know a lot. We think we do anyway. But in meditation, we need to really step beyond the boundaries of all that we think we know, all that we believe to be true about ourselves, about the universe. Krishnamurti called it freedom from the known. This idea that we can step beyond what we hold to be true, open to the possibility to adopt this kind of stance of waiting, actively present to the moment this trust that things will reveal themselves through that active presence, through that willingness just to be there, just to show up. You know, we can solidify the world through our beliefs about it. And it limits what we think is possible, limits our ideas about what we think we're capable of. And our world can become narrow and constrained in that, limited. You know, we've been told to get real, to be sensible for so long that a lot of the wonder and mystery gets drained out of our lives. We lose a lot of our sense of curiosity about life. I like to read about uh, astronomers and physicists and cosmologists and these scientists who are looking at the things on the big, big scale of the universe and on the tiny scale of atoms and things. And, and things get really weird at that, on those scales. And they get way out there. You know, I remember once I, <clears throat> this is probably out of date now, but one of these scientists was trying to give an idea of what the scale was on the size of an atom. He was using a simple hydrogen atom or something that has one thing in the middle and one thing orbiting around it, a nucleus and an electron, say a proton or whatever, one of those things. And he said if if the, the middle part, the nucleus, was the size of a golf ball, say, or maybe a small orange, you know, a little piece of fruit, then the electron would be a mile away and it would be like a speck of dust, size-wise. So what, what do you have then? It's mostly empty space in that, you know, in these particles. But, and then they say, well, but the electron, you know, it's just a probability that it might actually exist at any place, <laughs> right? But we're made out of that stuff. We're made out of these things, right? <laughs> Everything here is, you know, it feels pretty solid when your knee's hurting. But, but it's just mostly empty space and, and a probability in there. You know, and everything around is made out of the same stuff. It's just organized in different ways. That's pretty weird. Think about that. It's just all these little things with empty space being the biggest part of it. And then they split these atoms down, right? into these subatomic particles. I'm sure they've gone way beyond this, but 
But um, there are these things called quarks. There are six of them, at least that. The up, down, top, bottom, strange, and charmed quark. So they have a, they have a sense of humor for naming these things. And one of them, I think it was the top quark, they discovered that last. And um, in the description of it, they say, well, it has no mass and no dimension of any kind. Now that's impressive for a particle to have no mass and no dimension. So it doesn't exist, but they discovered it anyway. <laughs> and it's, it's part of the deal. And then, then the astronomers and the cosmologists who look at things on the big scale, right? They're looking at galaxies and huge distances in space. And things are just as weird there. And, you know, as, as soon as we start looking any distance into space, take the sun. The sun is just now setting this beautiful sunset, right? Well, it might have gone out because it would take seven or eight minutes for the light to get here. And so maybe it went out, you know, we'll know in a few minutes if it's still going or not. And that's, that's close, you know. These other things are really far away, you know. So we have this weird thing because we're always looking into the past as soon as we go any distance. And yet all we have is the present moment. How do we bring those things together in our minds? I remember reading once there was this, they'd seen, found a supernova. This is a, a big star that explodes, huge explosion. And the scientists found one that was happening right then, except it was actually happened 80 million years ago, because that's how many light years away it was. But they were seeing it, that's how long it took the light to get here. And they wanted to see it because um, apparently with these, that's the only reason we have anything heavier than a gas is because of these exploding stars, right? That's people in toasters and and uh, iPods all exist because of exploding stars. So we're just made up of stardust, after all. That's, that's what we are. We don't get heavier things than gas unless we have exploding stars. How about that? <laughs> you know, so then what's time then? If it's happening right now, but it's also 80 million years old. It's that far into the past. <clears throat> this is from, uh, from T.S. Eliot's uh, Burnt Norton. It's in part of the Four Quartets. It's an excerpt from it. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. Or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end and all is always now. I hope that cleared things up <laughs> around the issue of time. And then there was, okay, this is an article from, this is the last thing here. This is from the NASA website, right? Now, you can't get more mainstream than NASA, right? Okay, this is a direct quotation. 
it turns out that roughly 70% of the universe is made up of dark energy. Dark matter makes up about 25%. The rest, everything on earth, everything ever observed with all of our instruments, all normal matter adds up to less than 5% of the universe. Okay. What is all that stuff that can't be detected, but they say it's got to be there for the universe to function the way it does? So apparently there's a lot more and a lot less to the universe than meets the eye. It's mostly empty space, and 95% of it can't be detected in any way. But it's there, I guess. We tend to live our lives in the realm of the appearance of things, on the surface of things, and a lot in the realm of concepts, of our ideas. And we take for granted that this is the whole picture. And then we hear things like what these scientists are saying, calls that, it can call that into question. What is out there then? And you know, this isn't to deny the reality of, of the world, the conventional world that we inhabit so much of the time. And we live there and we have to take care of things and we, we do as best to live with grace and integrity in this way, on this level of things. We take care in that. But our beliefs about the universe, about what's real, can be so strong that we just take them for granted. (coughs) Excuse me. We don't question them. We wind up living our whole life based on beliefs and assumptions without ever looking to see if it's true. You know, to take our body, for example, these bodies, we've been saying, pay attention to the body a lot today. You know, you look in the mirror and what do you see? Well, okay, there's this thing standing there, head and body and arms and legs and all the rest of it. Torso and... But then in meditation, what happens? You know, what's the experience, direct experience of body in our meditation practice? You know, just close your eyes just for a second now. You don't have to change your posture. Just feel the body sitting there. Simple presence with the body sitting. What do we what do we notice there? What is the experience that we call body? And pressure and heat and coolness and tension and tingling and vibration. Movement, hardness, softness, textures. I mean, from the perspective of of this bare awareness, free of concepts, then the perception of body shifts dramatically. Our experience of body shifts very dramatically then. And what we call a body is just this shifting flow of sensations. This, you could say it's like a dance of the elements. 
manifesting in all those ways that I said. And you can't actually experience head or arm or leg in that. You can't experience that. What you call head is pressure and tension and movement and wetness and coolness and warmth, right? Or arm. That's what we can actually directly experience there. And, you know, it's at the same time I'm sitting here and you're sitting there and these bodies, they need to be fed and we clean them and take care of them. And, but, but that's not the whole truth, is it? Yes, there's head and leg and arm and we wash it and feed it. But is the experience then of the body as this flow of changing sensations, this dance of elements, is that somehow less real than, than what we have, what we see when we look into the mirror? Could we hold these as both, possibly hold these both as real, as equally real? And so in our meditation practice, then what we do is we, we let go of in a certain way or we drop below the conceptual level, conceptual reality. <clears throat> we go to a place of uh, direct non-conceptual experience. We let go of all that we know, all of our ideas about the world, about ourselves, who we are, and this is this beginner's mind, this don't know mind that Rebecca spoke about last night. We might ask, well, why, why, is, this, why, what's, why is this important? Why do we want to do that? What's the point with that? But if we, <coughs> pardon me, if we stay on the level of concepts, if we live on the surface of things in that way, we'll never enter the realm of, of true insight and understanding because these concepts don't change. They're just ideas. They remain fixed as ideas that we may hold at a certain time. We may get a new idea, but they're, they're, they're just, um, they stay fixed. They don't reflect the truth of things in a deeper way. If we look at the experience of the body sitting, this dance of the elements, that's in a state of constant flux and change, isn't it? Just directly, that's all you see there. It's just this shifting flow and flux. But head doesn't change, the idea of head. And so we want to get down to this level where we start to really connect directly with this changing nature of things. And the teachings of the Buddha, in so many ways, they're a teaching on the uh, truth of impermanence. Throughout the text, this is stressed, connecting deeply with this understanding. And in a whole way, the whole path really flows from a deep connection to the truth of impermanence. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Anything that arises, anything that is of the nature to arise is also of the nature to pass away. That's just the way it is. That's just nature. There's nothing weird or, or esoteric or hard to get in that. It's just the way it is. And just look at this. 
And so in meditation, then we look at our experience, we look at life through this lens of impermanence. Not as a, an intellectual exercise, not some kind of philosophical stance that we adopt, but through patiently observing our moment-to-moment experience and see, is this true or not? And you know, if we've been at this for a while, we, we can feel like, well, we understand this teaching, you know, and we hear it over and over again if we come to retreats or go to meditation classes. If we're new to this practice, you're, you're going to hear about it a lot. It's guaranteed. People over and over are going to say, everything is impermanent. Look and see. And we think we understand this if we've been hearing it for a while, you know. But we can have a superficial relationship there. And, you know, it's worth looking. Do we really get it? Do we really let this truth in? Do we let ourselves soak in this? Do we know it in our bones, in our cells? Because if we really understand this truth, if we really open to it, then it, it opens up the entire path. It's transforming deeply transforming, and it goes to the very heart of what the Buddha was talking about in his teaching. If we explore it deeply and let it touch our lives really directly beneath our concepts, our beliefs about the world, our beliefs about ourselves, all of our ideas and everything we think we know, it informs our lives in a way that's radically transforming. One simple way we might see this is as we see more deeply into this truth of impermanence, we see that there's nothing in that flow that lasts long enough for us to hold on to in any way. We can't hold on to any of it. We can't ask that any of it, anything in that flow, be a source of lasting happiness be the thing that completes us, that brings us contentment and peace, because it's just changing. What can, what could you hold on to in that flow? Nothing lasts long enough. And so through seeing this impermanence, we see this fundamentally unsatisfactory nature of things, you could say. Even pleasant things, have this quality of of being inherently unsatisfactory simply because they don't last. So we can't count on them to be a source of happiness for us, not a lasting source. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life and enjoy pleasant, beautiful things. Of course we do. But if our happiness depends on having them stay, having it be a certain way, we're in for trouble because it's not going to stick around. The beautiful sunset, oh man, it's glorious. But in 15 minutes, it's going to be gone. And so if my happiness depends on always being able to look out the window and see that beauty, I might get another one tomorrow, but maybe not. So everything has this quality of this unsatisfactory quality. And we start through seeing impermanence, we start to see that that everything is happening due to causes and conditions through natural law, that it's, it's 
not amenable to our will. We can't make it be the way we want it to be. It's not controllable in that way. It's coreless. It's empty of anything permanent. Anything we could call a permanent entity there. And and these are not things that I, I want you to memorize and then start believing. That's not the point. We look and see for ourselves. So opening to impermanence allows us to start to touch these truths directly. <clears throat> the grounds around here and the woods around here, it's a great place to explore this teaching on impermanence in a really direct, beautiful way. You know, if we take a walk out in the woods and the fields around here, You know, trees, they can teach us about impermanence, really, in a great way. <clears throat> trees are born due to causes and conditions, right? If you have a seed and it falls in a good spot and there's good soil there, and then, you know, an animal doesn't eat it, and, and it gets some water and some sun and then it sprouts, then we get a baby tree, right? If the causes come together for that. And then if everything goes okay, then that tree grows up and we get a sapling and a little bit bigger and eventually we'll get a mature tree. Trees live and die according to natural processes, this unnatural unfolding, the laws of nature. And so then if we walk in the woods, we'll see all these stages, baby trees, saplings and full-grown, beautiful, mature trees. They're just all starting to leaf out now. We'll see trees that are old and maybe they only have one branch that's still alive and and then dead trees on the ground that are rotting and and new ones sprouting right out of that. See all these stages of life. This is just the way of nature and you know it's not a problem for us in the woods. We think it's great. It's beautiful if we notice it at all. You know, but this is the teaching on impermanence. It's just right there, unfolding right in front of us. And if we bring our awareness and understanding to bear, we'll see that we're not different from trees. Our own birth is not different from the birth of a tree. These bodies arise due to causes and conditions, right? And then they're born, they live dependent on nourishment in the same way a tree does. They grow, mature. These bodies are constantly changing, aren't they? Like trees losing their leaves and getting new ones. You know, We lose all these uh, hair and skin and nails. The scientists say, I think it takes seven years and we get a whole new body. All the cells get replaced about seven years. And it slows down when you get older, I guess. But who are we then if we're constantly changing in this way? We get a whole new one. This is, this is the teaching of the Buddha right there, right, right in front of us. We don't see it mostly, we don't let it in. And so if we understand the practice, we'll see that we're not different from trees. We're not different from anything in nature. But we, we tend to hold ourselves apart to exempt ourselves from the laws of nature, from the truth of, of nature.
But with mindfulness, we'll see that everything, internally, externally, everything in our experience that arises is subject to change, is subject to passing away. We'll see this in our body, heart, and mind. It's just the way of things. And, you know, out in the woods, like I was saying, it feels right to us and it's beautiful and we love it. We find it so healing to be in the woods, I think. There's this balance and harmony in these changes of life. We don't struggle with it. You know, we think it's great and we find it healing. But when it comes to ourselves, then it's not okay, is it? You know, it shouldn't be happening, the changes that come. Somehow we feel, oh, it's wrong. It's not supposed to be like that. We fight and we struggle, we hold on. We don't want to see that we're just the same as all of nature in this way. It's all things that arise. Ajahn Chah, Rebecca was quoting him last night. I'm going to continue with a few quotations from Ajahn Chah, at least one tonight. He said this one time, Trees, mountains, and vines all live according to their own truth. They appear and die following their nature. They remain, remain impassive. But not we people, we make a fuss over everything. Yet the body just follows its own nature. It's born, grows old, and eventually dies. It follows nature in this way. Whoever wishes it to be otherwise will just suffer. So we're born, we live, we eventually die according to causes and conditions, just like everything in nature. But it's not easy to be with this a lot of the time. It's not easy to open in this way. And and sometimes if we really start to deeply open to the truth of change, it can be be frightening. A lot of fear can come sometimes. We start to see this directly for ourselves in our own experience. Start to see how, how quickly things are actually changing. It takes a lot of courage, it takes energy, it takes interest. It takes a certain real deep strength of heart to be able to open to this. And, and these aren't available to us all the time. Sometimes we can open to this and sometimes we can't. That's just the way it is. Maybe most of the time we can't. And so we fall into responses of trying to hold on or push away, judging, attachment, aversion, these different ways that we respond, that have, we've used them as a way to protect us from seeing the truth of change for a long time. So some very deeply ingrained habits of mind. And of course it happens, and it's not that we're weak or wrong or somehow a failure. We just can't open to this truth of impermanence of change all at once. It's too much. We don't always have the energy and courage to do it. And so along with this willingness to meet each moment and to really explore these truths in depth, we need to bring kindness and compassion, patience, and also a sense of humor. These things are really important as we walk this path. And so then we learn to hold each moment and this ebb and flow of of times when we can open and times when the heart closes down, we learn to hold it with a heart of kindness and care in the face of 
of the difficulty that we encounter there. <clears throat> His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, he's, there's, he's famously quoted as saying this, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. Maybe some of you have heard this. You've heard it a lot, maybe. It's a very famous quotation. My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. You know, we've heard it a lot. And, and it just sounds like kind of a nice thing to say, maybe. Or It's so simple. We can dismiss it and miss the, the truly profound understanding that a statement like that points to. If we really understand the truth of impermanence, if we start to really open to this understanding, let it touch us deeply and let it start to empty us out, then the response of kindness is what remains. That's, the, that's what remains there in our heart. <clears throat> I'll read this beautiful poem. Some of you have probably heard it. It's called Kindness. It's by, by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So you could say this practice, meditation practice, on some fundamental level, it's about a transformation of the mind and the heart. One way we might say this, it's we're in the process of bringing the mind, the heart together. Meditation is a process of bringing these together. And in this way, we could say that love and freedom are inextricably entwined, mind and heart. Krishnamurti again, he spoke beautifully to this. He said, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. 
Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't, it isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And so we practice and cultivate this heart of friendliness, this heart of kindness for its own sake, for the wholesome, beautiful quality there, but as a support for the practice of liberation, for this liberation practice that we are doing, as a source of strength and courage in our lives, really as an essential aspect of freedom. This quality of love, it forms a crucial aspect of the ground upon which this practice rests. It's really the thing that allows our practice to unfold and to flourish. This heart of friendliness, this heart of kindness, it brings qualities of acceptance and patience. And without these, our practice is never going to develop. It cannot deepen. And so sometimes we we actively do a a loving-kindness practice, which we're going to introduce tomorrow and a little bit tonight with the metta chanting, this metta, loving-kindness. Might be a new word for some of you, metta. My first retreat, this is an aside. (laughs) I'm fond of asides. My first retreat, there were all these nice little notes around. It wasn't here, but another place like this. Please be on time for the sittings, signed metta. Please, no food or drink in the meditation hall, signed metta. I was convinced there was some well-intentioned busybody on the retreat <laughs> who just couldn't keep themselves from writing these little notes. And they, their name was metta. I, I'd never heard the word before. So, metta, we're going to do. It says metta on the front of the building out there. So we'll be introducing this practice, loving-kindness practice. Metta has the quality, the characteristic, it softens the mind of the heart. It increases the flexibility, the pliability of the heart, of the mind, you could say. It increases its spaciousness. It puts us at ease. And so we we discover this mindfulness within the practice of loving kindness, this direct practice. We also find it within the mindfulness practice itself, this quality of Willingness to be present with what is just as it is. It's inherently kind there if we hold it in the right way. Our willingness to just meet the moment, inherently there's a quality of kindness there and we can really foster and encourage this in the mindfulness practice. This intention to understand and not to judge is inherently a kind attitude of mind, of heart. And when our mind and our heart are open and gentle and pliable, this serves as the ground for clarity of seeing, for the arising of wisdom. And so this quality of heart, it's not only compatible with this path of awakening, it's actually very directly enhances the movement towards liberation of heart and mind, towards understanding. This energy of metta, it's the energy of connection, of acceptance, as I've been saying. 
And it arises naturally and organically in our practice as we start to penetrate, to understand and, and to abandon and let go of the patterns of conditioning, the habits of reactivity that have in so many ways run our lives, that have operated for so long. These habits that tend to cloud the heart and the mind have had the tendency to close us down. That actually have led us away from connection, away from freedom. That have conditioned feelings of separation, of not being good enough. Once uh, someone asked the Dalai Lama if he had, why he thought so many people found him irresistible. (laughs) He's he's irresistible. You just see his picture and you just want to hug the guy. He just has this sweetness that comes through in his being, isn't it? For me, that's true. He said, he said, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated, but in my heart I never blame. I never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. Pretty cool. You know, sometimes we may have met or we hear about people like this in our lives. Maybe we read about them. Maybe we're lucky enough to actually meet people like this sometimes. They just seem to exemplify, to really embody this quality of love, of kindness, of compassion. There was a monk named Mahagosananda. Some of you may have heard of him. He was the, the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. He died some years ago now. He was a very beloved figure in Theravada Buddhism. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize about five times. And there's this beautiful picture at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center on the West Coast. So it's this monk, Mahagosananda, and the Dalai Lama, they're, they're bowing to each other. And they're bent way over. Each one is trying to get lower than the other one to show the greater respect. And... Uh, I used to go visit him. He lived the last years of his life in a small monastery not far from here. And I was a, been around here a lot over the years. And I used to go and pay respects. And, you know, he didn't know me. I wasn't like an old friend, but I, I would come sometimes. And, and in his later years, he started to lose his, um, his mental abilities in many ways. He, uh, he had Alzheimer's disease <clears throat> as he was older. And and he became quite um, childlike in many ways. But I remember one of the last times I saw him, I went in to visit him and, and uh, went into his room and paid respects. And he, he started giving me soap and, and cookies and things off of the shelf there, handing them to me with this radiant, beaming smile on his face. And it was just like being bathed in love and light to be there with him. <clears throat> like this field of loving kindness there. Just palpable. 
When we're with someone like that, someone like the Dalai Lama, some of these people we may have read about or or maybe we've been lucky enough to meet, they relate to us as though we're the most important people in the world. You know, they're just totally there for us. And it's not because of who we are, it's just because we are living beings. That's all we need to be worthy of that love. The fact that we're a sentient being is, is good enough. We don't have to fix our tragically flawed personalities or, you know, be special. All we have to do is breathe, be alive, be a sentient being. When we hear about or meet someone like this, they point to this possibility that one can actually live from a place of unconditional love. That's real. That's not just a nice idea. We can actually cultivate this within our own hearts and minds. You know, we can think, well, we're just born with a certain amount of that, you know, and that's the way it is. And we'll never be as loving and kind and compassionate as the Dalai Lama or Mahagosananda or someone. But the truth is that these aren't just things that we admire in another, we can actually cultivate this in our own hearts. Nothing's fixed or static there. If, if, that, if it was just set, then there wouldn't be any point in coming on a retreat. But it's not. Things are malleable. And where we bring the power of our intention, the power of our attention, where we bring these things to bear, this really matters. <clears throat> we can actively cultivate loving kindness and we can discover it within our willingness, our ability to just meet the moment. There's a quotation I once heard um, in a talk that someone gave. I think it was a talk that Joseph Goldstein made. And I think this, I think he got this from the part of what's called the Samurai Code uh, from Japan. It's, 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 I make my mind my friend, the statement, this, this code. I make my mind my friend. Often we can find in our practice that we're, we're not making friends with our mind. We're, we approach our practice as though we're setting out into battle in a certain way. We, we can set up a situation where we're in contention with our own mind and heart with our experience. We don't bring an attitude of befriending our mind and heart. Sometimes we hold our our mind in an adversarial way as though it's an enemy we have to subdue, to subdue. You look at our relationship to our thoughts and thinkings, often thinking we can look at that as the enemy, have to get rid of it, make it stop, make our experience be some other way than it is. Change this mind, this heart, get a better one. Fix it. It's not right. We can hold it in this way. It's much more useful if we can learn how to make friends with our mind, with our heart. It's the only one we've got, for one thing. We don't have to love the contents of our mind all the time. I mean, a lot of the times it's just nonsense. Maybe embarrassing at best the contents there. It's not that that's not what this is about. We don't have to love 
all the nonsense that's in there. It may not be all that beautiful much of the time, but we can cultivate an attitude of friendliness and of acceptance. We train ourselves to befriend this mind, this heart, this body. I used to work in a program in Northern California as a volunteer, and we were studying the migration of hawks, these big birds of prey through the Golden Gate area north of San Francisco. They migrate through there and they like to cross the water where it's fairly narrow there because a lot of them don't like to fly over open water much. And we used to to trap them carefully, try to not injure them, and, and we would put bands on their legs and, and weigh them. And you know, we're trying to help under to understand them and, and to help preserve habitat for them. And uh, so we had to learn how to hold one of these hawks. <laughs> they're strong and they're fierce. So you have to hold them very carefully or they'll bite you or put a talon through your thumb. <laughs> their, their grip is like tons. And so you have to hold them firmly but very gently because they're birds and they're, they have hollow bones and you could injure one. So you hold them firmly and gently. This is a good way that we can hold our mind and heart, hold our practice, hold our experience like we'd hold a bird. We don't let it flap around and hurt itself. We don't let it run all over the place. We don't crush it with too much pressure. We don't force it. We hold it in a gentle, kind, firm way, gently, friendly. We don't relate to it as an adversary. So we bring this quality to our practice, receiving this experience of life into this field of friendliness, this heart of friendliness. The Burmese teacher Sayana Ujotaka said, how can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, by really paying attention throughout the day. Then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer and it will become your friend. Now this is our practice, isn't it? This simple presence, this willingness to meet the moment with care, with kindness, holding it gently, carefully, meeting it just as it is with the intention to understand rather than to judge. And we hold all of our life as worthy of our attention because we can learn what we need to from anything that arises in our experience. I mean, we are really, we are set up really good for in this way. There's nothing that arises in our experience that we can't be mindful of. And there's nothing that arises that cannot serve us as a vehicle for liberating wisdom and insight to arise. Nothing. We don't have to do anything about any of it. We don't have to have it be a certain way. We don't have to fix it or change it, hold on to anything, get rid of anything. If we relate to it in the right way, anything that arises will serve us. We are golden here. 
It's just this willingness to meet the moment with care and kindness. That's all we need, really. And so if we hold our meditation in this way, then then we can imbue this practice of mindfulness. We can discover the quality of kindness that is inherently part of that, this willingness to meet the moment. And then we'll find that the practice of mindfulness ultimately, essentially, is a practice of kindness and love. So I'll end tonight with a short poem by Rumi. (coughs) Every object and being in the universe is a jar (coughs) overflowing with wisdom and beauty, a drop of the Tigris River that cannot be contained by any skin. Every jarful spills over and makes the earth more shining, as though covered in satin. Make peace with the universe. Take joy in it. It will turn to gold. Resurrection will be now. Every moment, a new beauty. So let's just keep sitting quietly for a couple of minutes. Let these words drift away. Let the silence come back into the room. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, we have a period of walking meditation now. And then at the 9 p.m. sitting, we'll do a short bit of um, loving-kindness meditation, loving-kindness chanting to uh, start off that sitting. And uh, we'll probably make it a little bit short (laughs) tonight. So please be welcome to come uh, to that sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.